0: It's worth knowing what's really going on. This is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.
1: Ocean Breeze, Tropical Beach, Pina Colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on.
0: This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley! It's anger! Let me out of Fear! Safety checklist is complete! Disgust! Ew! Ew! Sadness is in the house! Oh, no. Hello. I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday.
1: Get tickets now.
0: This, my friends, is Access Atlanta. It's a new podcast that shares the best things to do, see, eat, and experience. AJC
2: Access Atlanta is sponsored by Northside Hospital Cancer Institute, built to beat cancer.
0: Hello, Atlanta. Thanks for joining us. I'm Shane Harrison, your host for the AJC's newest podcast, Access Atlanta. Every week, I'll share with you some of the best places to eat, play, and live out loud in the ATL. Of course, we'll tell stories that make our city one of a kind. And this week, I'm here with uh, one of our staff writers, Bo Emerson, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, Robert Spano, who is the conductor of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. And music director. And music director. Okay, and so what is it, uh, why did we decide to do this story on Spano now?
1: Well, first of all, I want people to know that Shane Harrison is, by the way, the rock and roll master in Atlanta. I don't know if this has been brought out. You've been relaxing behind the microphone here so long, sounding like an FM announcer, you know, all cool and everything, but you're out there with the punks and the skateboarders and flying to England to see the Matt Johnson and all of these people. So so uh, just so you know, he's actually wild and nuts behind this cool demeanor. <laughs> But we're going to talk about classical music today, so you can go back into your FM radio announcer personality. Uh, I I, I will do that. But the reason we're talking about Spano is he has announced this year that he's going to be leaving uh, the ASO, the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra, although he won't do that until the 2021 season. So that's three years from now. There'll be a long goodbye between now and then, but... Uh, there's all kinds of good reasons to catch him while you can, and particularly at the end of this season. We'll get to that a little bit later.
0: Yeah, so he has been uh, leading the orchestra for quite a long time
1: now. Uh, Absolutely. In fact, uh, he will have led the orchestra for uh, Twenty years uh, by the time he leaves, and that is only one year less than Robert Shaw, who everybody has the sense was here forever uh, but, uh, but Spano has had just as much of an impact on the on the orchestra as anybody has.
0: Right, right, yeah. Well, he, he did sort of bring a more modern sensibility, I guess, to the orchestra.
1: Well, you know, uh, one of the things that really ticked off a lot of subscribers back during Shaw's time was that he insisted on uh, performing contemporary music. Well, uh, Spano has taken that up to the next level, and he's also commissioned a ton of contemporary music from uh, people, uh, only one of whom is actually from Atlanta, but he's done enough of it to where he's created his own sort of school, and yeah. it's called the Atlanta School. <laughs> Right, <laughs> and it's really identifiable it's tonal it's it's uh in, uh influenced by pop music it's uh you can listen to it you can, it has a beat michael kurth who's the bass player he's done a ton of his compositions you can actually like dance to this stuff so that's the orchestra of 2021 you know yeah. that in in a nutshell well that's great i mean i think that
0: that that you know gives it uh it gives it more life it doesn't it's it doesn't feel like it's so old and staid. Well, and-
1: hopefully, it means it'll attract an audience that hasn't already been, you know, placed into formaldehyde and right. and and propped up in their cha- chairs. Right. I think I think that he says that Scott. It's not just one audience. It's a lot of audiences now. Right. Right.
0: Yeah, that's great. I mean, the more young people you can bring into this music, uh, the better, because that's the future, obviously. Well,
1: and most people think classical music is all just one thing. But he points out that there's some of his composers like Barbara Higdon, who is uh, from, I'm sorry, Jennifer, Jennifer Higdon. Thank you. Barbara Higdon is an old, uh, an old New Age uh, musician. Yeah. But uh, uh, Jennifer Higdon is; uh, uh, she's got her own fans out there, and uh, that they mob her when she comes through the, uh, uh, through the foyer. So uh, uh, it's it's a whole bunch of different audiences.
0: Right, right. Yeah, that's great. I, I I love the fact that that they're doing things that aren't just the traditional old warhorses that you know everybody has heard a million times. I mean, there's 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 a, an appeal to that, and people love it, but you know you also want to be challenged every once in a while well
1: and he's not he's not ignoring that too he he's doing a ton of that uh in this season and in the next season um the uh um so he's obviously paying attention to uh to what needs to be paid attention to right yeah
0: so uh does he you know you talk to him uh, about uh what what's happening in the next couple of years, and what his plans are? I assume does he have plans yet for you his post career? He
1: does not, and he's he says it's kind of exciting uh, not to have any plans. He's uh, I asked whether he'll compose more, and uh, he's a composer. He's also a pianist. He's uh, um, uh, and and he has said that uh, he's not really uh, doesn't really like composing. He likes having composed. Uh, He finds the whole prospect kind of, like, frightening and nauseating, he says. Uh, But that's the Dorothy Parker approach to uh, writing, you know. I I like having already written. He... um, uh he but he does not have any plans to join some other uh symphony at least s- none that he's sharing with us right yeah
0: so uh did did he say anything about whether he would be staying
1: here or he said he wants to stay in atlanta he likes atlanta um and uh uh the it seems to have uh kind of grown on him he he pretended he was in New York for a long time after he moved here because he didn't even have a car for the first four years. Uh, but uh, uh, I think I think he's gotten into the groove here and really enjoys it here.
0: Yeah. Well, that's great. Um, so uh,
1: was there uh, any other highlights of what you you uh, we can expect to hear in your story that we've got coming up? Well, he's a really, he's a fun guy to talk to. First of all, he's totally the anti-stuff uh, shirt uh, type, and uh, we talked about some of the Things that he's done uh, in in his time here, and and he's done all uh, things to sort of, uh, in addition to the the new music and stuff, he's he's done things like create these sort of. Th- theatrical uh events on stage. So, um they've he's invited on uh, uh folks from the Alliance and folks from the opera and he's had uh guys like Daniel Arsham create these wild sets that uh that have been part of the um, symphony performances. And he's also done uh, uh like collaborated a couple of times with Laurie Stallings. We talked about that. She is of course the uh creator of the Glow uh, dance company and is well known for performing in in places like Marta stations and right. in, in Piedmont Park and, and just in unusual locales. And he did a thing with her at the goat uh, farm, which was uh, his debut as a dancer. He, yeah. I said, uh, he says, I'm not a dancer. Please don't say that. But in fact, he was. He he not only performed one of his own compositions, which the dancers in the Glow Company um, uh, uh, moved to, but he he got up and moved along with them, and they spun his piano around while he was playing it it was like watching keith emerson you know uh in the old days of emerson lake and palmer and (laughs) yeah for you kids that was the 70s that was 70s progressive rock uh yeah so but uh and i asked so did she make you wear an animal head he said okay yes she did and uh obviously this is a guy who does not take himself too seriously and that's what i enjoyed about talking yeah Well, great. Well, uh, now let's uh,
0: hear uh, Bo Emerson's interview uh, with Robert Spano, the music director at the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra, who will be leaving us in a few years.
2: music director of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra
1: and that's going to end in uh, three years I'll be leaving end of the 2021 season and how do you feel about that
2: oh it's an overwhelming feeling I don't know uh quite what I feel half the time it's it's been such a wonderful time here for 17 years so far and I will have been here 20 years by the time I leave and so it's no longer really a job, it's my family, it's my musical life, these are my colleagues and friends, and the thought of not being here is unimaginable at this point, point. and I, I know that'll become more real as time goes by, but uh, at the moment, uh, I guess, in a way, knowing I'm leaving in three years puts in relief just how grateful I am to be doing what I do here,
1: because it's such a joy to do this work. And it gives people a chance to plan a really good party.
2: Hopefully we will have a really good party in three years.
1: So you were a youngster when you uh, arrived as far as I was music 40
2: directors. when I started um, uh, as music director. I was hired when I was 39. Um, I had a year, 2000, 2001 season, I was called the music director designate. Uh, because I had taken on the responsibilities, but I hadn't moved to Atlanta yet, and I actually didn't conduct as many concerts as I normally would in a season. I think I did five subscription weeks that year. And then in 2001, I officially became the music director.
1: And now you came from Brooklyn. Did you still have responsibilities in Brooklyn while that year was going on or?
2: When I came to Atlanta, I remained music director of the Brooklyn Philharmonic for, I think it was four more years, I did both. And then I left the Brooklyn Philharmonic and and, uh, was here. But I had already changed my residence. When I came here in 2001, I took up residence here.
1: That's a lot of directing.
2: I was um, reluctant to leave the Brooklyn Philharmonic because I loved that orchestra too. It was a very different experience than the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. The Brooklyn Philharmonic at that time was a, a... we played five subscription concerts a year. We played at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, which was a very cutting-edge, uh, exciting, dynamic kind of new music and unusual music or unusual presentations. And so it was a very special kind of uh, experience. Uh, but after doing both for four more years, I really wanted my focus to be here and didn't feel I could continue to... To give enough time and attention to Brooklyn, so I, I left at that time.
1: now the Brooklyn audience uh, embraces all kinds of the new, and Atlanta maybe was not as ready to do that when you arrived you, you However, you uh, drew them to contemporary composers I think that's... we have done a lot
2: of uh, new music, living composers, and focused primarily on um, essentially my generation of living American composers. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember when I came here, I heard from people not in Atlanta, but elsewhere saying, well, you can't do new music there. Because they stodgy. Well, I was reading Tom Wolfe's A Man in Full, right. right when I was hired. And I remember him describing in his novel, the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra, as a institution that had to end every concert with bolero to make sure everybody was happy but that hasn't been my experience here at all uh in fact we did make a commitment right away when i came to uh, cultivate relationships with these american composers and to at the same time cultivate an audience for them we didn't just want to be playing their music we wanted them to become part of our musical family and for them to be appreciated and I think it was a very simple kind of strategy which was play them more than once, let them speak to members of the community, interview them on uh, essentially what you could call a podcast but we made uh, composer interviews every time we played them, play pieces of theirs more than once, put them on our touring, put them on youth concerts, record them, play pieces that we didn't necessarily commission, but reflect their work. So second and third performances. And I think really that's what worked was cultivating real relationships with these composers. So there wasn't a piece here and a piece there, but really an opportunity to get to know their work and to appreciate them. And over a few years uh, they developed their own fan bases, which was very exciting to witness. At a certain point, Jennifer Higdon was just mobbed in the lobby um, at intermission and after concerts, and that was very gratifying to see that happen.
1: Now she's the the Atlanta in the Atlanta Composer School. She's the one native, right?
2: We um, it was about five years into my time here, I had to speak to a. A board retreat as kind of the kickoff speaker. Let's get this board retreat going. And I had no idea what I was going to talk about or what I was going to say. So I'm, in those days, I didn't drive. And I was walking to work, and the retreat was here at Wait, the Wood of Arts Center.
1: Why weren't you driving?
2: Well, I had gotten used to living without a car in New York, and I, when I moved to Atlanta, I lived in Midtown, and I was 10 blocks away from work, and so I decided to live without a car. Awesome. And that worked really well for a while. Uh, so I'm walking to work thinking, well, what am I going to talk about? What what's going on that could get us all fired up and and um, ready for our mission of planning and strategizing and looking toward our own future? And I I realized, well, all these composers we've been championing, commissioning, performing, they have something in common, and it's a discernible shift aesthetically in the history of American music, because this generation of American composers do, do not sound like their teachers. Even though they may have respected and learned from their teachers, they've developed a very different vocabulary.
1: They're not a 12-tone uh, crowd.
2: That's right. They're, they're outside of that generation before's aesthetic. I realized, however different Higdon is from Gandolfi, and however different he is from Goliath, and how different he is from Theophanides, what they do have, and did have in common, is their tonal, tuneful, and influenced by popular music, or world music, or both. The recognition that they shared these characteristics, even though they're so different from each other, Made me realize, oh, this is a this is a historic moment in American music where we can. It's it's like looking back historically and seeing the change from the Baroque to the classical period, from the classical period to the Romantic period, or various names of groups of composers like the Big Five in Russia or the Liszt in France. This is happening right here. There's a new school of American music going on, and we've been doing it, and it's exhilarating and fantastic to realize and so I ended up talking about these composers we'd been uh, working with and then soon after that we realized well we've been doing it here so let's call them the Atlanta School of Composers so it was never a, it was never a design to create such a thing per se but it was a recognition of what had what had been transpiring a lot of people have tried to pin me down who's in the Atlanta School of Composers well uh, and then other people would say, "Well, how can it be an Atlanta school of composers when none of them are from Atlanta?" And but there are there are like any family, you know, there there are closer and more distant relatives. And I think even John Adams is part of this mix for us because we have done a lot of Adams music, and in many ways, he's kind of the 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 grandfather to this generation because he was doing uh, aesthetically before. Uh, this generation much of what they were then to pursue in terms of their vocabulary and language.
1: Well, maybe they're the Atlanta school because because of you.
2: Well, I don't know about that, but we also then in the end have Atlanta composers who are closely associated with us too. Alvin Singleton, who was Robert Shaw's composer in residence, who we've continued to have a wonderful relationship with. And then in the last few years, Richard Pryor, who's teaching at Emory as the conductor of the orchestra, is a brilliant composer and, and we've been doing more of his music. We have a commission coming up and a recording as well of his music. So it's it's an evolving, uh, ever-expanding and flexible kind of uh, rubric.
1: And maybe uh, the history books will catch on, we'll, we'll take that title up and, and... And uh, Atlanta will have a have a place there.
2: Well, certainly there has been a number of uh, writers and people doing their doctoral dissertations and who are looking at these composers and what we've been doing for these seventeen years as a as a discernible musical event.
1: Now, uh, you uh, arrived. At- after a, a, a somewhat rancorous departure of, of the previous uh, music director, and in the in the years since then, there have been uh, lockouts and and uh, uh, financial crises, and uh, uh, and and the very uh, latest, uh, you actually ended up speaking on behalf of the of the musicians, um, which is an unusual thing to do. I wonder whether. Uh, you ended up uh, uh, getting any criticism as a result of that.
2: Well, I think in any... Uh, I mean, you've pointed to a lot of the rocky or difficult history that's also been part of my tenure. And the the two lockouts we endured were uh, some of the most horrific experiences of my life and certainly for everyone associated with the institution. I think that um, one of the most challenging and difficult things about a situation like that, a lockout or any kind of work stoppage, is that those parties who really share a common interest and a common goal are at such a state of lack of comprehension of each other that they've, they've lost sight of that common goal. And maybe one of the most difficult things is to endure through such a passage, to come back to finding that common ground. And I remember during both lockouts, but especially the second one, which was much more, well, it was longer and more
1: painful in many ways. It delayed the start of the season by nine weeks. and
2: We, we did have a delay in starting the season. We lost uh, many concerts along the way. I just kept thinking of Churchill saying, Never, never, never give up. And recently seeing uh, the darkest hour I was I was it actually reminded me of that period because it was really a, a test of endurance and perseverance and just saying, there this will end, and we will be back to work, and the music will be playing, and everyone who loves this art form and this institution for making it happen will come back to the table, and we will find a way out of this. And it's very hard to remember that.
1: Although some symphonies have gone away as a result of... The
2: the... Brooklyn Philharmonic
1: no longer exists. There you go.
2: So I'm well acquainted with the possibility of institutions going away. And I think that was what was so important during those difficulties was to believe and trust and have faith that it would be resolved and we would uh, be back to making the beautiful music that we're supposed to be here making.
1: And uh, you're up to one or two positions away from your 88 uh, that are 85. I've forgotten what the proper number is.
2: Since the second lockout in the almost three years now, uh, we have restored. It was a, one of the things that brought us to resolution was a commitment to restore 11 positions to the orchestra that would bring us back up to a complement of 88. This was never a kind of, this is the solution for the future and ever after. It was a, oh, this is a necessary step that we can commit to everybody involved. Uh, the, the board of the Woodruff Arts Center, the Symphony Board, the players themselves, our staff, we're, we're making this commitment to within four years restore these 11 positions. And that was something everybody could see was an important next step to the refurbishment essentially of the orchestra. And it was so gratifying within a year and a half we had accomplished that fundraising goal. And in fact, we had achieved the fundraising goal before we could manage the nuts and bolts of actually hiring the players because it takes time to announce auditions, to have them, to go through the process of hiring these people. So it's it's been a it's been a wonderful sign of, of new health uh, that we were able to achieve that so quickly. So you
1: got money you haven't had a chance to spend it yet.
2: <laughs> In a way, that's true. That's,
1: that's a plus. Um, the uh, I, I'm thinking back on some of the uh, interesting the things that have happened that Daniel Arsham and his uh, his beautiful sets that uh, that you played under and. Uh, uh, you've, uh, uh, you've had other sort of theatrical elements that have been added into the, uh, uh, to the symphony experience. Talk about those a little bit.
2: On a number of occasions, and with various collaborators, all of who've just been wonderful, uh, we've presented concerts in a very theatrical way, and sometimes with relatively unexpected repertoire doing the Haydn creation in a theatrical setting and essentially in a staged version, or the Bach Passions. Um, More obviously doing La Boheme or Madame Butterfly in a being opera, doing a kind of semi-stage or theatrical presentation would be more expected in a way. But then even having Chris Theophanides create a piece that was intended to be a multimedia event, that was intended to have... Um, a theatrical element as part of its conception. And so we've had David Arsham collaborating with Chris and uh, Anne Patterson doing the set designs and we were creating the direction and James Alexander and his collaborators creating our opera productions and Laurie Stallings coming in with her dancers for our recent Orfeo with David Daniels. All of these um, terrific collaborators and finding... uh, ways of having the concert be a more theatrical experience without necessarily being an opera is to me an inherently just really interesting exploration.
1: Do you think that's changing the audience? Do you think that's attracting a different um, audience member?
2: I think that there are uh, people who are resistant to... uh, they, They want a very conservative listening experience and that that's what they're looking for when they come to concerts and then there are people who are looking for new experiences and wanting to experience things in a different way or a kind of exploration and i think one of the things we've had to be sensitive to is the variety of audiences we actually have because we say our audience but in fact our audience is i don't know how many discrete groups of people or maybe it's as many individuals as there are are on any given night what they're looking for, what interests them. And I, I know I get people who clamor for more Tchaikovsky and Beethoven as much as I get people who clamor for more Higdon and Theophanides. And that means we're finding the right balance. When uh, when I'm getting equal complaints, I know I'm doing <laughs> really well with the balance of things.
1: Right, if they're quiet, then you must be doing something wrong.
2: Yeah, exactly. So. Similarly, with the theatrical experiences, I think there are different audiences. I do know that the effectiveness of it, for me, was most proven when we did the John Passion. And there's a place near the end of the Bach-John Passion where Jesus has died, and there's some not so important parts of the narrative that are about to be told by the evangelist, and it's late in the evening, and it's a notoriously sort of down moment in in the life of the piece in any performance of it. In our set, Jesus had been, all the singers had been on podiums that were lit from within, and Jesus had left his after he died, and the evangelist had been next to the conductor's podium and he left his lighted podium and he went over to Jesus' podium and it was a tall sort of cube and he took his shoes off to enter this hallowed ground and slowly got up on that podium and sat down and looked around as if, where is my Savior? At which point, he hadn't opened his mouth yet to deliver this notorious recitative, and people were already sobbing. So the the efficacy of the staging of the work was clear, if not throughout. At that moment, it was so clear that there was real value in um, in presenting it in that way. Did
1: you get a catch in the throat when you were watching that happen?
2: Oh, absolutely. It moved me, too. I mean, one of the challenges as a performer often is... Um, Maintaining one's ability to do <laughs> one's job while being moved.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Try not to cry and, and conduct at the same time. Exactly. The uh, uh, now you also it, it has to multiply your your problems though when you have all of these moving parts and and I'm I'm I can't wait to see what's going to happen with Candide because you you're going to have the the ASO chorus and you're going to have the actors and you're going to have the orchestra and you're going to have a Gabrielli, a moment there with five different moving parts. I wonder what that's going to be like.
2: Well, there's no question when you start introducing dancers, singers, set designers, yeah. m- video uh, actors into the mix, things can get all the more complicated. But to me, that's exhilarating how those things work together and how they complement support and supplement each other at that that's for me one of the great thrills is um seeing all of these multifarious disciplines coalesce into something that's a a whole
1: it also means you have to step outside your uh, your comfort zone and and do things that you might not otherwise do
2: it's funny there's there's this notion of a comfort zone that i've never found
1: <laughs> you mean you're I've always never, uncomfortable, no matter where you are? I've never
2: found a comfort zone. <laughs> Even if I've never been able to find my comfort zone, I've definitely tested the limits of discomfort <laughs> repeatedly, and maybe never more so than in the productions I played with Laurie Stallings' group yes. Glow, because she has this wonderful way of working with amateurs to include them with her incredibly skilled moving artists. And I was very intimidated by the notion of participating in the choreographic aspect of the works we collaborated on together. I was playing the piano music that I'd written, and we had worked together on that. And so, in a sense, that was uncomfortable (laughs) enough. And then having the piano be part of the set. But then she has this way of finding... uh, ways for us, those of us with no skill, <laughs> to be part of the pageantry and it's it's astonishing to me that, that she can do that. By I taking mean,
1: your piano and spinning it around while you're playing
2: it. <clears throat> being on that platform and having the piano spun around was one of the most um, incredible experiences I've ever had on any stage. But then finding ways to interact with her dancers was even more challenging to kind of trust that trust her and trust that she knew what she was doing and that she would find a way for this to be integrated and to work. And it was very um, daunting in a way.
1: But now you're a dancer.
2: I wouldn't go that far.
1: <laughs> okay, now you've moved professionally in front of people. <laughs> and they've clapped. The... Uh... I guess though that, that, you know, I wonder whether Stokowski or other uh, you know, folks would have, now, would have drawn a line there and say, no, I can't, I have a, I have a shirt front, I don't want to unbutton, you know. I, uh, uh.
2: Well, I found for myself that my musical life is so much richer and rewarding as I keep my involvement in composing and playing the piano and playing chamber music and, playing with singers and teaching and all those things for me fuel my work as a conductor and and vice versa. My work as a conductor informs my work as a pianist and as a teacher and as a composer. And it's just, there's this wonderful kind of um, synergistic relationship between all these activities. And conductors in in the end have to be, I mean, we're the musicians who don't make any sound. So at some level, we have to be musicians in some other way to to be conductors at all. Uh, and certainly, most conductors had some real uh, advanced skill with an instrument or as a singer. And
1: Although Robert Shaw was not, was not a trained musician.
2: Well, Robert Shaw was a very trained musician. He just... Did a lot of his uh, education was on his own,
1: and, and, and through through voice rather than through violin or piano. Or...
2: And certainly, he had that expertise with the chorus. Mm-hmm. But he—I um, mean, some would say he was self-taught. But after working with Toscanini and Zell, I, I'm, I'm sure there was a lot of <laughs> learning going on in that relationship too.
1: Right. Now, uh, you've uh, sort of uh, spoken to us uh, in, the, in the past about uh, composing and how uh, you're kind of like uh, Dorothy Parker. You like to have composed. Uh, the composing part is not necessarily your favorite thing, but now you're going to have some more time on your hands. Or will that mean that you'll be writing more? Or uh...
2: I do want to write more music. I, I wrote a lot of music until I was about 31, 32, Until about five or six years ago, I didn't write that much. There were just a few things I did along the way. But over the last five, six years, I've gotten back to writing more, and it's been so gratifying. I know I need to do more. I do find it a process that is um, arduous and taxing and challenging. And you so beautifully quote Dorothy Barker. It's it's nice to have it done. and it is it is so gratifying when you do get to that point where you think, oh, I, I, I can believe in every every note that's there. I, I, I believe in that. That's I don't need to edit anymore. I don't need to fix it anymore. As a performer, you always have to just let go and be interested in the next thing. And no matter how dissatisfied you are with something, you have to let it go and invest in the next moment. That's the life of a performer is that investment into the next thing all the time as a composer you can over and over and over again edit change tinker
1: continue to fool with it and it and that's that's, until you've ruined it
2: that that can be a trap but I also know how gratifying it can be when by continuing to fool with it you don't ruin it and you actually do make it better and better and better Beethoven's sketchbooks are a testament to that process. You know, so many things that we think of as inevitable and great and must have sprung out of his head like Athena from the forehead of Zeus. It's not the way it happened. <coughs> and you see versions of what we now regard as some of his greatest music. You see some of the earlier versions of what he had to go through to get there. It's aspiring. It's very inspiring to those of us who tried to work through that process that it's possible to end up with something that
1: great. <laughs> right. It, could, it can get better. The, uh, but you, And last time we, we spoke, you, you hadn't really thought about, okay, what's going to happen next? Uh, where am I going to go? Oh, in my life? After Atlanta, yeah. What uh, Have you thought about that? Uh, are you going to stay in Atlanta? Will you travel more? What, what will happen to you? I don't know yet what my life is going
2: to look like, and there's an exhilaration in that that's, that's for the moment, still really great. I mean, at some point, I'm sure I'll panic. <laughs> what am I doing? Right. I've got to know what I'm doing. Right. But right now, knowing that I've got time, uh, it's the opportunity for me to think about how much do I want to teach more or less than I'm doing now? How much time do I really want to have to write? How much... Piano playing, do I really wanna do? Do I really want another orchestra right away? The job of a music director is so much more than being a conductor. Mm -hmm. And the thought of, I have to admit at the moment, the thought of being able to guest conduct and not carry the weight of the institutional responsibilities is, wow, that could be very liberating.
1: Yeah, you don't have to carry the whole weight
2: So we'll see. I don't don't know what's next exactly in it, and um, we'll see how that works out. If I had to guess at this point, I will stay in Atlanta because uh, it's wonderful to live here, and if I am traveling more, what better place to travel from, and it certainly feels like home.
0: Let's see what's happening in and around Atlanta over the next 10 days. Festival season is in full swing this weekend. And no matter which direction you look, it seems there's a major gathering happening. In Cobb County, Kennesaw's Big Shanty Festival offers a dose of history, along with all the live entertainment, food and arts and crafts. And don't miss the parade, which happens at 9.30 a.m. on Saturday, April 21st. That event kicks things off and the fest continues until 6 p.m. that day and reopens again from noon to 5 p.m. on Sunday, April 22nd. It's all happening on Cherokee Street, in downtown Kennesaw and you can get more information at Kennesaw-GA.gov and that's not the only big happening in Cobb in the coming days next weekend on April 28th and 29th it's the Smyrna Spring Jonquil Festival they'll have about 175 arts and crafts booths lots of great food and an entertainment stage and the Smyrna Library will also be hosting a book sale during the festival the Smyrna Spring Jonquil Festival runs from 10 a.m to 6 p.m. on April 28th, and noon to 5 p.m. on April 29th. That's Saturday and Sunday. And it's on the Village Green in Smyrna. And you can get more information at smyrnacity.com. In North Fulton, you can tell that spring has sprung in Sandy Springs when it's time for the annual Sandy Springs Artsapalooza. It's a two-day gathering of local musicians and more than 100 artists and crafters a play area that will keep the kids happy too. That's happening from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Saturday, April 21st and 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. Sunday, April 22nd at 6100 Lake Forest Drive, just off of Hammond Drive in Sandy Springs. And you can get more information on that at sandyspringsartsapalooza.com. In Gwinnett County, they'll be gathering on the Duluth Town Green for the annual Duluth Spring Arts Festival. You'll find close to 60 painters, photographers, sculptors, leather and metal workers, glass blowers, jewelers, and crafters showcasing their work. They'll also have live artist demonstrations, acoustic music, a children's play area, and lots more. That's the Duluth Spring Arts Festival, which takes place on the Duluth Town Green on Saturday, April 28th, and Sunday, April 29th. For more information on the Duluth Spring Arts Festival, go to DuluthGA.net. And if you're in town, check out the 47th annual Inman Park Festival. This tree-shaded vest is always a treat with great musical acts, this year including local favorites Ruby Bell and the Soul Phonics. It also has one of Atlanta's most entertaining parades and the fascinating tour of homes. It's all free, except for the home tour, which is $20 to $25. The Inman Park Festival happens from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. April 28th through 29th mostly along Euclid and Edgewood Avenues in Inman Park. You can get more info on that at inmanparkfestival.org. Looking for laughs? The Laughing Skull Comedy Festival has just what you need. The organizers of this ninth annual event went through 1,000 submission videos and picked 65 of the best stand-up comedians from all over the country. The ones who were chosen were invited to perform in Atlanta. From Thursday, April 26th through Sunday, April 29th, these performers will be showcased in 30 shows at six different venues all across Midtown. Some of the best-known names will be at City Winery at 10 p.m. on Saturday, April 28th, which spotlights comedians who got their start in Atlanta and went on to bigger things. Among them is Last Comic Standing winner, Clayton English. You can catch these stand-up comedians at the Laughing Skull Lounge, Smith's Old Bar, Red Light Cafe, Village Theater, Relapse Theater, and City Winery from April 26th through the 29th. Those tickets range from $15 to $28. And you can get more information on the Laughing Skull Comedy Festival at laughingskullcomedyfestival.com. For some contemporary listeners, opera is a hard sell. But if you're new to opera and want a good entry point, George Bizet's Carmen might be just the ticket. And that's what's up next for the Atlanta Opera at the Cobb Energy Performing Arts Center. As a story posted by digital radio station classicfm.com points out, Quote, Bizet's Carmen has everything you want from an opera. High drama, passionate characters, a love story. And what's more, it's absolutely packed with great melodies. Even if you don't know the opera, you'll definitely know the tunes, unquote. Another good way to learn about what you'll see is to attend one of the company's pre-opera talks. One hour before the performance, you'll learn the story behind the opera and what inspired the composer and librettist. And that's free with your ticket. So check out the Atlanta Opera's take on Bizet's Carmen with performances on April 28th, May 1st, May 4th, and May 6th at the Cobb Energy Center. Regular tickets are $50 to $151, but there are discounts available for groups, students, and others. And you can get more information on that at AtlantaOpera.org. For more things to do around Metro Atlanta, head to AccessAtlanta.com. Our senior editor is Nicole Smith, podcast edited by Ryan Horn, music by Bo Emerson and Billy Guen, and I'm your host, Shane Harrison. Join us next week for more Access Atlanta.
2: AJC Access Atlanta is sponsored by Northside Hospital Cancer Institute, built to beat cancer.
0: In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, The Monica Pearson
1: Show. When you look at what you've become, what has it cost you? Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough.
0: With Atlanta's most powerful influencers, as you've never heard them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.